Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm Brian. I'm CJ. This is Isaac. Full force. We're back. (laughs) We're back, yes. And this week, um, before we start, I just wanted to add um, a a slight content warning that we are going to be discussing uh, the film Pray Away, which is streaming on Netflix, and it covers uh, gay conversion therapy or comparative therapy. So if that's something that's going to be triggering for you, then this might be an episode that you want to skip. Yeah, it's a tough watch. I was going to say, I got halfway through it and I was just like, hmm, I don't want this tonight. <laughs> so I went to bed instead. And then I finished it this morning and I was sitting in the parking lot of the VA hospital, which is a whole nother story, like basically crying at the end of this movie and all these like grizzled, like old man veterans walking by me. And I was like, well, I just, I just, I just, uh, what do you call it? Uh, validated all of the stereotypes they have in mind of the liberal younger man, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> We're all soy boys here. Yeah. <laughs> right, oh, <wow>. exactly. <laughs> soy boys. <laughs> so yeah, so it's it definitely tough. I and and I I feel like I have the least. Now, when I want to say I have the least amount like of skin in the game. I don't want to say that, but I came at it with not as much baggage. I think that most people, you know, it's just like a straight white guy. Uh, but it, it it was tough to watch, and I'm glad I watched it. But damn, it's just like the amount of harm, right? And and the amount of the scope of what that kind what the documentary takes on is is impressive and and depressing at the same time but maybe we should start <laughs> not not jump right to that oh well i mean i think you bring up a good point that it's hard to watch and i've seen a lot of people being like i'm not going to watch it queer people saying that and i think that's like a 100% valid choice to make if you are a queer person like are under no obligation to watch a movie about conversion therapy but i actually think uh it's it it should probably be required viewing if you're like a a straight Christian who's kind of like you know like why should I care about um, LGBT people or why should I you know if you're like on the fence of the Methodist Church right now of like why is this such an issue or like why is this the thing that uh, people are getting so up in arms about I think it's an instructive movie in that regard yeah I mean for me I think that's a great point and I think especially for people maybe even outside of kind of churches that are struggling with, you know, their identity uh, and what it theologically, what it means to kind of not be terrible. Uh, but I, I think I'm just thinking, I guess about the Episcopal church who I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of assumptions that we've figured this out. And so maybe there might be a little bit of a, I don't know, a tendency to think that I don't have to watch it because I'm already on the right side. And and I was totally convicted by the by watching it about how much I didn't realize, you know, and, and how late, even though I feel like I, I came, you know, on to how I, you know, my, my thoughts theologically and otherwise about thinking about homosexuality and the Bible and stuff like that. I feel like I was ahead of the curve of a lot of my friends, but it was also like depressingly late. Like when I was watching things and not even knowing, you know, had no clue that any of this stuff was happening. Like when I was in high school in the mid, uh, you know, early to mid nineties and stuff like that. And so that was, that was instructive and depressing. And I think it's just a good reminder. Like you said, CJ, it's like, I, I, you know, I thought about, I thought about asking Nora if she wanted to watch with me and I got like five minutes and I was like, yeah, this is not, I, I don't want to create that. I, I want her to live in the bubble that she kind of lives in right now, which is that ability to kind of be, to know stuff like that exists, but not to have to like, I guess, experience that specific thing firsthand. So anyway, it, it was, I don't know what I'm trying to articulate here, but it was, it was, it was tough to watch. And, and I think it's, I think it is, like you said, necessary viewing for straight people. And I would say, especially straight progressive Christians would, would do well to watch this and, and understand a little bit more. 
Maybe we should back up and just kind of talk about the basics of the documentary for folks who haven't watched it yet. It's uh, It follows basically four people um, who were leaders in this group called Exodus International, which was the first gigantic sort of global conversion therapy advocate. They had conferences. It follows some of their biggest spokespeople, John Pock being, I, th- I guess, the most famous a guy who claimed to have like got rid of homosexual desire, married a person who claimed to no longer be a lesbian, and then became this like right-wing spokesperson all throughout the 80s and the 90s. The, the thing that I think is helpful about watching the documentary is that it, you know, we're, Americans are so bad at knowing our history. The 70s through the 90s, when this stuff was going on at, at a, I guess, on a mainstream level, um, you see these people speaking on, you know, CNN and 60 Minutes and Fox News. Like, it's just it's just a reminder for folks who are alive today who maybe were children in the 90s like I was uh, and don't really... And weren't quite aware of, of what was in the mainstream at the time, just how prevalent... Like, a, a person who's running a conversion therapy program could get invited onto, like, major cable news. And, you know... It was just a completely different time. So in that in that sense, I think there's something really important historically about it. But it basically covers Exodus from its beginning in, in the 70s and 80s all the way to its dissolution in 2013. Well, and and then it also follows a, a person who's kind of taking up the mantle of conversion therapy and sort of the ex-gay movement today in a different way. Yeah, and that, that's what I was trying to articulate. And I think prevalent isn't even like I don't know if it's a strong enough word because it's, it's like it was so baked in. Like I would have not even questioned it. Like I was just like, oh, okay, right. And so I think that that's like that kind of like the sense of what society was like, and just especially I was in high school then, being an old. Um, I was in high school then, and there was no, there was no question like you know that that oh well, that's just wrong, right? Like or that's against the Bible, whatever it is. And I, I went to a fairly liberal Methodist church at the time too, so it's like so I, it, it was it was just like baked in, and so like that's there's. You know, we always we've had a lot of talk about deconstruction and, and stuff like that theologically, and and I feel like I don't know. I, so yeah, prevalent is is the word, but it it, it felt more like insidious that because it was almost just like there was no other side to it. Like in my at least in my life, and I like I said, I did not grow up evangelical. So it, so to me, like that always meant something a little bit more. There was just like it was just even assumed in those spaces, I guess. And I would, if you had told me anything about conversion, I would have no idea what it was about. So anyway, well, I I would even add that. You know, Clinton, Bill mm. Clinton signed the Defense of Marriage Act during his time as a president. In 2008, Obama and Hillary were both opposed, like ran on an anti-same-sex marriage platform. Like, so it's not even that long ago that we had major sort of quote-unquote liberal candidates, even though they're both really Republicans, like running openly against the idea of same-sex marriage. So just in, in that way, it's a helpful reminder, I think, especially for younger people, just what a dramatic shift the Obergefell case was in 2014 and like how quickly we can kind of forget just how different it was culturally uh, a while back. Anyway. Yeah, and I, I thought something that the, um, the documentary did well was kind of pointing out how rooted the conversion therapy narrative as it existed in the 90s and the 2000s, how much of it was rooted in the AIDS crisis and Mm. was rooted in reaction to um, the the AIDS epidemic, just like absolutely ravaging 
uh, like the LGBT community as well as, you know, drug users and, you know, people of color who were poor. Like, so, I mean, the AIDS epidemic crossed all of these lines, but the evangelical reaction to it was really focused on gay people, right? And, and it added fuel to this uh, conversion therapy program that became enormous. Like Yvette Cantu, who's one of the talking heads, you know, talks about how she lost 15 friends, gay friends to AIDS, and then went into conversion therapy because of like the weight of trauma of watching all of her friends die. Yeah, I completely agree, CJ. That was one of the things that really stood out to me too, is just like, not only was the AIDS crisis like a, a source of some of self-hatred for that, but like, it was also a major talking point about, you know, when that you see in debates there in the documentary about like, well, why can't you just leave people alone? One of the major talking points of this group was like the homosexual lifestyle is dangerous and the evidence is the AIDS crisis. Yeah. but in, And I think like uh, on the flip side, you talked about like not people, Americans are horribly knowing history. This isn't super drawn out in the documentary. And uh, I don't know if maybe they could have done it more given like the structure, but I mean, like a huge reason that evangelicals like got up in arms about gay rights and about gay marriage was because uh, like, was also because of AIDS activism and because of organizations like ACT UP demanding rights, even like, even like basic rights for gay people in the face of this horrible disease. And so it became politicized, like not outside of conversion therapy because of the AIDS epidemic as well. Um, and I don't see that, I don't often see that talked about in Christian spaces about, um, you know, we can have like debates on a the theological level about like, or the psychological level of whether you can change and whether it's okay for Christians to like demand that gay people change, but the historical context is often missing. And so I, I, that is one thing I appreciate about the documentary. Yeah, and I think they could have done more to kind of, I mean, they're like glimpses of this and, you know, that clearly wasn't the focus. It, it can't do all things, but people like Jerry Falwell, who they briefly show, really made their name in a lot of ways, like on an even bigger scale, pushing that line and in response to activism by the LGBT community during the AIDS crisis. I mean, it, he features a couple of times, you know, and, and then people like John Bach, like just with, you know, the leaders of the Republican Party all throughout this era as well. Uh, yeah, they were right at the seat of power. Well, and you get, I don't know if it's the start of the uh, love the sinner, hate the sin, love the sinner, whatever it is, however it goes. Um, I don't know if that's the start of it, but you can, you pick that up even in, in those early Jerry Falwell clips where he's saying something to the effect of, well, I don't hate that people. I hate the act, or God doesn't, what, is, what did he say? Something like, God doesn't hate gay people. God hates the actions of gay people. And then he quickly ties it into AIDS. And, you know, and, it, and you, so you, you see, if not the genesis, you, you, it's, you can see where that kind of like talking point suddenly just becomes truth for the evangelical, for evangelicals and non-evangelicals, for people who are kind of in that headspace and trying to make sense of um, what they think about this. It's just, you know, it, it just kind of snowballs after that. Yeah, for sure. This random... Since you said that, uh, random reminder that... It's one year. Uh, <laughs> is that what you're going for? No, oh, those sure. lyrics are in Hamilton. Oh. <laughs> it's always like triggers me. I thought you were going to go for the... line oh, in Hamilton. I know, that line in Hamilton. I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I thought you were going to go for a one-year anniversary reminder of Jerry Fallout Jr., uh, the picture. Uh, we're, we're right up on that one-year anniversary. So anyway, carrying on. Let's not go down that road. No, no, no. <laughs> Quick shout out to a podcast called Gangster Capitalism, though. I just listened to their series about the Falwells. Very interesting. Hmm. And, it, and, it, and it does uh, dive into the topic of the Falwells um, and their, their treatment of the LGBT community at Liberty. So if you're at all interested. Um, one, one thing that made this documentary really hard to watch for me, I mean, ap- apart from like the blatant homophobia, <laughs> Um, was that so much of the work that Exodus International and like the political wings connected to Exodus International did to like oppose gay marriage or to oppose like same-sex couples having rights at all. Like it's also the foundation of the current right-wing assault on trans kids and on trans people. Like you can see the exact same rhetoric and the exact same talking points being recycled now that they've lost the fight on LGBT marriage, on same-sex marriage. So it was like, (laughs) I was just like boiling with rage for like half the time I was watching this movie. Yeah, that's a, I I noticed that too. And so the the documentary also follows a young man who organized this thing called the Freedom March. Uh, They don't really say where that's taking place, or at least I don't remember. Um, I think the... Freedom March was in D.C., but the, they don't really say where this guy's based out of. So, but, you know, he has all these uh, all these pages about leaving the LGBTQ lifestyle on Facebook and stuff. And almost every time he's, he speaks to someone, first of all, the, the documentary begins with him talking about no longer being transgender because he, w- he found Jesus. But then also um, he has a phone call with a parent of a transgender kid. Mm-hmm. And to me that, yeah, like that stood out to me is like, okay, we've been talking about kind of the transgender panic for a couple episodes. And it's clear that the XK movement now is thriving in that sort of milieu. Yeah. And I, I thought it was super interesting that uh, the way that they framed his story or the way that he tells his story, because, um, he says that he's a detransitioned trans woman. And in his testimony, he talks about how he was a sex worker and, you know, like he really dramatizes the things that he was using his body for. And, but like what I read in that is that he was like in a lot of precarity and he, you know, who knows how he ended up converting. But I think if you're in a, like a precarious economic situation and you're a trans woman, uh, which is already incredibly hard just to like live, just exist as a trans woman in the world. And you're also like economically precarious and a Christian ministry is like, we will help you and we'll give you food and maybe we'll give you a job with one of our parishioners until you get back on your feet or whatever. All you have to do is like live as a man now. Like I can see how that would be like if you're truly desperate, that could that could be a compromise you make. And you're also like feeling all of these feelings about like I've just converted to Jesus and I'm like feeling all of this love and all these emotions. Like this is right. So I'd like totally understand where that where that person is like how that person got to this point. And I also like, oh I'm gonna deck you. <laughs> well that's that economic precarity is a reality for um a huge percentage of LGBT teens, you know, like that is part of the cost of 
living fully as yourself in a household with people who reject you. And and it's a I, I agree that that while it doesn't get into like the the background of his time other than what he says about it, I don't find that scenario you just laid out implausible at all, CJ. It's not implausible, but it's I mean, that was the I think was one of the and I realize I'm maybe perhaps a little bit naive here, but I mean the that phone call from the mom, that was the part that was the part where I was just like, I'm not watching this right now. I, I just, I, and, I, and I don't want to be too, like, like I said, naive about like, I don't understand it and how you could do that. It's just like the reality of that. It's what it made me think of is like, like, okay, you heard the story of like Abraham and Isaac and you're like, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and there's like, there's no question there that I would just, you know, I love him, but if this is what God wants me to do, it's like, fuck that. I mean, that, that was like, I, I was just like, nope. And I just closed my, <laughs> I stopped watching it. And my wife's like, what's going on? I was like, I don't want to talk about it, but it's just like that. I don't, like I said, I don't want to be too naive and like, because I, I understand and I know this is a huge problem and it happens a lot, unfortunately, but it was just like, damn, it's just like, you, do you even hear what you're saying? Like, I, I love, I love her, uh, my, my kid, but it's like, damn, just hang up, reevaluate. I, 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 that part, that was the part where I texted you all. It was just like, I'm not, I can't watch the rest of this tonight. So I, I don't know. I, that was kind of my breaking point. And then I watched the rest of it and it was like, I had other thoughts, but that was that moment was just like, Okay, this is the mindset. And I don't know, I don't even know who you blame for that. And I mean, because I don't know, they're, they're, they've been indoctrinated in a way that tells them they can't love their own kid. Um, and I think there's blame on their side, but I think there's a lot of blame from the people that are feeding them that message as well. So, Yeah, I think you overrate how many people don't love their kids. Oh, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> I, and, and that's what I was trying to get at is like, I, 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 just, I, don't, I just don't understand it. So, I mean, yeah, whatever. I don't know. I'm, I, yeah, I would just say having spent some close proximity to a trans, a trans foster kid, like, yeah, uh, people don't love their kids all the time or naturally. And, uh, it's a reality, but as far as blame, yeah, I mean, this is the reality about bad theology kills, right? I mean, that the, the church is to blame. That's it. Yeah. And I, I don't want to be like, like I said, doe eyed kind of, idiot here about this kind of stuff. It's just, I, I don't know, like, is I guess sometimes it's like when you, you might be like intellectually know something and then you, or like philosophically kind of know something, but then you actually like see it. And then again, there's a privilege of me being able to say this and there's a privilege of me being able to, I've always been able to kind of live in the spaces where I can keep my kids safe to be whoever they want to be, right? And, but I don't know, there was just something, it, that's, that's the moment I was just like, yeah. I mean, I don't drop a lot of F-bombs on the podcast. But I was like, fuck this. Fuck that person. <laughs> it's like, I'm not watching this shit anymore. And, and then, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I, one try, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I, just, I, I know what you're saying, Isaac, and I totally understand. But it was just like, I guess I'm, I'm blocked from seeing that a lot of times. Because I'm, I'm in a space, I guess, theologically and religiously where we just don't experience that as much. And it was just, an, I don't know, hard to, hard to hear. Not to make it about me, <laughs> but I'm, you know, whatever. I'm curious to hear what y'all think about a couple of things. But first of all, kind of the way that Exodus and kind of the catalyst for all four of these people that we follow through the documentary to leave the XK movement, like specifically that Lisa Ling interview with survivors of the XK movement speaking to the leaders of Exodus, like... I had I had never heard of that interview, but um, seeing the footage from it, where basically they sat down with people who had gone through their conversion therapy, and the president and 
um, Lauren, this young woman who's a spokesman for them, just sat there and listened to them talk about like the damage it had done to their lives. I I just can't imagine. Uh, first of all, I thought it was an incredible moment because they actually, as a result of it, decided to close the thing. I can't imagine that happening now to people who are like in QAnon or something. <laughs> I, just, I, I thought it was a really incredible moment in the documentary and I'm curious how y'all reacted to it. Yeah, I I mean, I thought it was super fascinating and I I wonder if like maybe the difference that you brought up, like how you, you can't imagine that happening with someone who believes in QAnon or whatever. I wonder if maybe the difference is that like the people who were uh, running Exodus International also were you know, they were gay, they are gay. <laughs> like they have all since come out and said that actually we, we struggled the whole time, never stopped feeling attracted to the same sex. I just think that the dynamics of being in, in a, a heart, like an extremist political space like QAnon could be different. Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I do see it as an equally extremist sort of political space, but I, I, definitely, I, I definitely think you also make a valid point about the, that difference being key. It's just the kind of thing that people always say, like, well, if they really sat down and like listened to the people that they're hurting, like, then they changed their mind, which is such a fantasy. But here it actually happened. <laughs> so I was just blown away by that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, CG, I think the point you bring up is is true that, you know, <laughs> they're, they're struggling, you know, by keeping themselves closeted and they are gay. I thought the part with Randy Thomas, the guy who, when one of the activists asked him, if he realized he had blood on his hands, I thought that part was pretty impactful. I think I can't remember the president's name, um, but just I mean, if you if you watch the documentary or if, if any of us go back and watch it, and just just looking at the like true like pain on his face as he's listening to these stories, I mean, I Isaac, I hear what you're saying, and I, I think it's I think it's one of those rare moments. It's one of those fictions. I think you know we we've seen it with so-called purple congregations over the past you know five years, this idea that somehow me being in relationship with you is going to effectively change your mind about something that's harming other people um, and creating, you know, uh, pain in the world, whatever it is. And this is one of those moments where it's like, oh, well, this actually happened. And I think the difference is what you, what you mentioned, CJ. But yeah, that was one of the, the highlights of the, of the documentary to me because I actually did not know a lot about Exodus or the history. Um, and when they did say that, like, you know, hey, it's, it's, we're going we're gonna to shut it down. I was like, what? What? This is when I was sitting in the parking lot again uh, with a, a, a aged uh, veterans walking around people. I was like, I was having all the range of emotions uh, watching that. But it was, yeah, that was one of those things where it's like, that's, you know, when uh, with Hannah Bowman, when we talk about like accountability in, in previous episodes, that was one of those moments of that felt like accountability. Um, and, and it makes me ask, wanted to ask you all a question of like, for all the people who were kind of part of this, the ex gay movement, ex ex gays, um, what do you think about, like, they, they did so a lot of harm in the world and they do have blood on their hands for people that harm themselves and, and even just like kind of the psychological and spiritual trauma. What, I mean, how did you react, I guess, to that kind of like turn, I guess, away from this and in, into kind of what we would all say, I think, is better, better theology. But like, I think there's a tendency sometimes for on the left, especially to not give people the grace or the space to make those kind of changes, that that kind of stuff gets held against them for a long time. And I, I struggle with that. Uh, but also, I understand why. I, and any thoughts on that, I guess, about like, I, I haven't heard any kind of talk about this, or I don't know anything about these specific people. But I'm wondering if you had any thoughts on specifically 
you know, that kind of dynamic, I guess, when somebody is involved. Like, and you're seeing it with like George Bush, right? Like they're trying, George Bush is trying to do this now to kind of step away and like, hey, I'm a painter now. And he has a, he has a cameo in this where he talks about, you know, carrying the party line. I, I don't know. Thoughts on any of that? Does that make sense? I think that the documentary actually doesn't do a great job on that point of like, I think it, it kind of at the end turns to like, all of, because most of the talking heads are former leaders of mm. Exodus, you know, it kind of turns all of them uh, to like, how do we atone or like that they do personally feel guilt and shame about their roles in it. But I don't think that the documentary really answers the question of, you know, like how, how do they live now and how do we, um, as, or say we, but like, how does the LGBT community as such as it is, um, you know, like kind of ask for accountability from people who were in many ways, like harmed just as badly by this theology as we were harmed. I mean, I don't think the documentary answers that question at all. Um, and, and I think it's really hard because like, I, uh, I'll speak for myself. Like I do not ever like want to come across one of these people. Like I don't want to be in conversation with them. I don't want to go to church with them like that. But I also think that, I think that they deserve care as an abolitionist. I think that they deserve care and that they also deserve healing and that punishment is not going to change like any of anything about what happened in the past. But uh, so I don't know how we move forward. Like I don't know how we move forward from, from like the, the actual deaths that these people caused of LGBT people. And also like the enormous political apparatus that so many of these people were involved in creating that is like still assaulting LGBT people's rights. Yeah. I mean, I thought about this a lot too, as the documentary went on, um, and then it ends with some statistics about, you know, uh, LGBT people, especially teens who go through some sort of, some form of conversion therapy, are, I think it said twice as likely to commit suicide or attempt suicide as a result of it. And I just thought like, they just created a massive death machine. And uh, I, one of the biggest voices that's missing in the documentary or the biggest voice is like any LGBT activist that was like mm -hmm. fighting against this movement yeah. from, throughout its history. Like you don't hear a thing from them about, you know, or any survivors of the ex-gay movement. Like they're not, I mean, I get that it's like the documentary is focused on the people who did this and then kind of where they are now. But uh, yeah, I think one of the failings of the documentary is that it doesn't feature any word or commentary or perspective from survivors. And it's not like there isn't room for that in this. Like sometimes documentaries have a very specific scope and you're like, okay, I understand why they didn't add that because it doesn't fit the narrative they're trying. But there's obviously, I mean, it gets brought up a couple times, right? Like I can't remember specifically when the one guy get, goes, gets drunk and goes to the gay bar. Like that was an obviously, but, and, and this goes back to something that I struggle with when I think about and was probably the kind of genesis for me asking the question is, yeah, like, I understand that you were in this very specific, but there are, there are people, it's like when somebody spends, you know, 20 years being evangelical or whatever it is, and then all of a sudden one day discovers, you know, liberal or whatever theology or liberation theology or something like that. It's like, but there are always people doing this too. Like, and so there's, I think sometimes when there is like that ex-evangelical movement or whatever, like moving into a new space that is, has a little bit more grace or a bigger conception of God, there is kind of this idea that like, hey, look what I've discovered. And it's always like, well, yeah. 
I'm glad you're here, but you have been, we've been, we've been having this conversation before you. So I, I, I think I also would have liked to have had that because I think it would have painted a fuller picture of like what they were, what they were sowing into the, into the community and into the world, into the church, but then also the kind of the bravery of the people who are fighting against that, you know, in a way that back when there was not as many options, I guess, for, to have a voice, uh, a public voice on that, on that subject. So. Well, and I think that Julie Rogers was um, kind of like, she was kind of used as the survivor thread, right? Because she was so young when she was put into conversion therapy by her parents. She was, well, like, six, she 14 or 16? 16. She was, she was 16. And like, at, you know, one quote, I mean, she says, I wanted to be good. And that, I mean, that's when I started crying and like did not stop because like, that's all that's all we ever wanted to be, you know, in youth group. <laughs> like, that's all like young, good Christians want to be. We just want to be good. And so I think that she's kind of filling the survivor role, but in, like that actually made her a much more complicated figure for me in the documentary because uh, now she works for the human rights campaign and is like actively involved in um, like lobbying for public policy in favor of LGBT people, which I think is kind of the most the most direct way uh, way forward for like atonement if you feel that she needs to atone for her role as a leader. But I also like, you know, I, I think that she's kind of held up as the survivor, but she's also in that Lisa Lane video when she's still on the board of Exodus in like 2011. And like, I was in high school in 2011. There was a kid in my youth group who got sent to conversion therapy in the same, like in DMW, where Julie is from. You know, there were girls at FCA who would give testimonies about being ex-gay. So they're like, I, I just, the, especially in the DFW area, conversion therapy is, is they wouldn't call it that, but it, it's very normalized. And I literally never heard of forming theology growing up in North Texas. And Julie's like a part of that directly in the time that I was in high school. And so for me, it was a, it was complicated because I'm like so glad that she's married and working for the human rights campaign and like doing this. But I, I wish they had added more survivors that were not literal figureheads for Exodus International. And even after Exodus International, I did a little research. Um, she didn't have a, a shift like to like, there's a New York Times article from 2013. So a couple of years uh, after that, I think, where she was still on the on the side of I don't want to kind of engage or uh, acknowledge these feelings, and so I'd rather just, I think this is just a call to being single, right? And so there definitely was a transition. And I, I just want to say too, I don't know, I don't, I, I'm not trying to say that any of them have to atone. I just thought it was an interesting question. Um, I think that there is there's a sense of these are people who were lied to, and I have a lot of empathy for people who get who are lied to, and then. It doesn't I don't think it alleviates the, you know them from accountability of what they do or what they kind of create, but I do think that there is a, a there should be some sense of uh, of empathy or compassion for people who were told in order to be good you can't be who you are right um, and I think that's a super I think that's a really powerful influence and in especially in a kid's life but in an adult I mean I think most adults would would encountering that message no matter what it meant uh, outside of or including uh, you know um, sexuality. It's just, that's, there's a message there that I think it's really hard to kind of combat. And I think especially in the way that we all live, that most of us live, you know, if you're a Christian or you're a religious person and somebody in that 
organization says you're not good enough, that that's there's something that's going to happen there no matter what. I think. Um, so anyway, I. I I, I'm, I'm, I didn't want to just basically come out on only saying that I think all of them need to repent uh, or atone for what they did. I don't think they don't have to do that either. It's just, man, it's just such a hard, it's a hard thing to unpack. I, I just, I guess what I'm trying to say is that Isaac, I think you're right. And uh, CJ, that having that other side of the, of the conversation would have balanced that out. And I think would have made it a little bit of a fuller uh, picture of what was going on then. Yeah. I just, I don't think the documentary is able to do that. I mean, you know, I don't think it does a very good job of trying, but like it doesn't even mention the fact that she works for the human rights campaign. A couple of the other people, it does talk about how they're like actively trying to get to speak against the ex-gay movement. And I appreciate that. But one of the other things that it doesn't really mention is that they all made a shitload of money doing what they did. And it's obvious that they're all living very comfortably now as a result of it. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that... I'm not in active community with them. So I'm, I'm not going to like sit down and say, Oh, they need to do X, Y, or Z. But like, that's an obvious factor in the documentary that, you know, maybe something that was trying to be a little more investigative of the roots and funders of, of these programs probably would find fertile ground to dig into because it's obvious that it was like, not only um, made these people famous, it also made them very wealthy. Well, yeah, I mean, like Exodus International is like expensive. You're sending, I mean, they have like, they famously have uh, presidential treatment as well as like the conferences and like the outpatient treatment. Like people were paying, and, and it's that the economic aspect. I think you make a good point, Isaac, to add on to it. The economic aspect is covered slightly, but it's covered in by pointing out that there were actual therapists and psychologists who worked with them who knew that um, conversion therapy doesn't work and you can't therapize someone into stopping being gay, but they kept working with them anyway because they knew they'd always get a paycheck from mm-hmm. this company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the interesting things that I... I'm glad you brought up the psychology part, CJ, because one of the interesting things to me listening to it is, uh, you know, the pitch of this pseudoscience was all this, you can control your desires, you can control, 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 control. When last week in that discussion about pastoral care, we talked about how that was like this sort of um, therapeutic deism that's prevalent in a lot of mainline churches is offering people that exact same thing and how pornography is like a central character in both sets of rhetoric. Mm. You know, it just shows that like the circle of purity culture is really going around all of this, like not only for the XK movement, but just for like, sort of from like a Marxist perspective, like this is how Jesus will make you an effective leader or an effective like uh, wage earner for your household. (laughs) It's just, you know, it's one tight circle predicated on this idea that like religion is going to help you like control the parts of you that would keep you from like succeeding in the like white white capitalist system that we have basically yeah i i this i don't know if this is inappropriate so y'all tell me uh i did i whenever they started talking about those uh the conferences uh or even the parties that people were having and i think at one point julie talks about the fact that even though they were all going through this weird kind of process it was also still like this very close community um shared on these very specific uh things but i just kept thinking at these conferences like i just hope some of them are just like 
connecting, hooking up, whatever it is. Like just, I hope some of them are having some kind of joy. They're getting shipped off to this conference and all they're just like, they're meeting their special someone in that moment. I, I don't know. I, that was, that was a, a there's a YA novel about it. Is it have really? You read, have you read The Miseducation of Tamara? Oh, Post? God, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, we should have her. I know, Emily. We should have her come on. Um, anyway, uh, yes, I forgot about that. Uh, yeah. Also, they made a very good movie of that. Yes. So, if so, you can stomach a, a, another movie about conversion therapy, that one's actually quite hopeful at the end. Yeah. And like I said, I don't, I don't want to be disrespectful to the kind of tone of the, of the documentary and everything, but that's what I, that's where I got my joy out of this. And I was like, I know some of these kids are just like, all right, you're going to put us all together. Great. Let's, let's get this going. Um, so that was, that was my hope for them, for all those kids going through that is that there was some kind of exploration or whatever happening. Well, I think the other thing though, is that going back to that thread of the initial thing, like one of the people who started this whole idea was like, I felt alone as a gay man. Yeah. And then I was like, I wonder if other gay men are also feeling alone. And then suddenly, you know, it was like a way for people to be like, I can't admit that I'm gay anywhere else except this place where I'm supposed to be trying not to be gay. But hey, like publicly to this other group of people, I'm gay. Yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, I think that it is. I mean, again, it just reiterates how like different the climate was around being openly LGBT and, you know, four decades ago in this country than it is. I mean, not to saying that it's like not difficult now, but I mean, it, then it was like truly damaging. There, there's this one quote where it said like being gay was criminalized. It, no, it was criminal. It was like dangerous and it was sinful or something like that. Like just these three sort of cultural assumptions at the time, like that I thought like packaged up why you had everything to lose if you were open about your sexuality in that time. And and it just really hit me. It was like this perfect um, conglomerate of like the state and the church <laughs> just ready to like ruin your life if you were open about who you were. I will say this is a, this is kind of a tacky comment, but <laughs> it was really funny to see the gathering of like the, the current ex-gay movement because yeah. they're all in really cool outfits, yeah. but all of the, everything cool comes from gay people style-wise. And so they all look incredibly fucking gay the entire time, even though they are like, we are safe. I, I was not sure how to bring that up, but yeah, the party at the end, I was just yeah. like, hmm. yeah. hey guys, <laughs> I hope you're having fun. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like, I, I will say that they, they followed this one specific. I would honestly say, like, well, I have no idea how, how small or large these movements are, numbers-wise, but, like, this seemed to be a Facebook-based mm. ministry. And it was interesting to me. I wonder if that was just the person who gave them access and was like, yeah, you can follow me around with a camera. Because, like, Bethel, the megachurch in Redding, California, like, also still has conversion therapy. They have a very glossy Instagram called Changed Movement mm -hmm. where they are just actively running a conversion therapy program. I mean, like Watermark Church in Dallas still does this, um, which is not Chandler's church. I might be misquoting that. I don't want to like get sued. So don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. I, I, I don't know if Matt Chandler is at Watermark. I know that Watermark... <laughs> Does conversion therapy, but you know, like there, there are enormous congregations all over the country, and smaller independent congregations are just random therapists who who still do conversion therapy. And so, it was interesting to me that the the documentary didn't quite try to get at the scope of what is still going on 
even though Exodus International is closed. Yeah, I mean, other petty comments, the 80s and, and the 90s were just like the ugliest decades. They're just <laughs> seeing the way people were dressed. I was just like, oh my God. It, uh, those suits, the ladies, like power yes, suits. I was like, yes. this is not the way to make you to make people think you're not gay. <laughs> like um, it was just, uh, I mean, the ninth, they're just they're boxy. They were like, let's get you in one color. Let's look. You're gonna look like a box walking down the street. But also, like the way they were like, oh yeah, at these uh, at these conferences, like we're gonna make men embrace their masculinity by playing football and it's like <laughs> I know. yeah, yeah it's gonna I don't work. Know, make make men less gay ha- having them get tackled by other men <laughs> I, I did because there's nothing that, homoerotic about any of the sports that are happening in the united states right now <laughs> i did find the gender difference there very interesting where they were like men you gotta get outside and play the most homoerotic sport <laughs> allowed in america and Ladies, you got to stay inside and braid each other's hair and do each other's makeup. Things that happen at sleepovers where famously nothing gay ever. <laughs> right. Well, I, so I don't think I've talked about it on the on the podcast. Back when I when I in a previous job, uh, we were looking at uh, making curriculum like a uh, sex education type curriculum for churches from a progressive lens. Anyway, so I was doing research and I found this thing called boyfriend bear. Have you ever either of you ever heard of boyfriend bear? So boyfriend, oh God, no. yeah, boy, yeah. I have one. I bought one. Boyfriend bear is basically. A just a, like a, a teddy bear, and it has a little pocket in the back where you can put all of your impure thoughts into the pocket, or write notes to your future husband and then give it to him on on your wedding day. Uh, but all of the pictures, oh, I did that. Welcome to evangelical. Yeah. <laughs> well, but all the pictures and all the pictures and like the suggestions for using it are like get a group of girls together and bring your boyfriend bears and just spend the night like laying on the floor talking to each other with your boyfriend. It's like. Yeah, you all just don't know what's going to happen at this party with everybody. Yeah, it's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to bring my boyfriend bear to the party. Let's go. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, they, they, it's like fundamental mistakes on this side from these people that just have no sense of what's going to actually happen. Wow, I'm so triggered. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I say, I've never seen Isaac literally speechless before. <laughs> boyfriend bear, yeah. I have it to my church office. I'll bring it to the next door recording so you all can see it. Oh, I, I can't. I can't look at that. <laughs> oh, Lord. I don't have a fight corner this week um, because it, it felt like a little um, felt like a little crass to like do do a fun fight corner after a very serious discussion of the perils of conversion therapy. But I will say, as like a drive by like repeat offender, I mean the dean of the National Cathedral can continue to get them. I thought about that. Uh, I thought about that when um, her name is. What was the young woman's name? Julie? Okay. When she talked about the Matthew Shepard service, I was like, just after that, he appeared in the fight court just weeks after. I know. I mean, just like, it was, it was such a powerful moment in the documentary that's to watch Julie like get so emotional about being in a church where gay people are accepted and where their remains are treated with like uh, the kind of holy respect that, um, that other people's remains are treated with after such a like violent crime. Um, like it was a really powerful moment. I cried again. Yeah. And, but then to the back of my mind was like, and a few weeks later, the Dean was like, well, I like Max Lucado. So I'm going to invite him just for kicks. And I'm not going to think about how powerful this service was for the community that my cathedral serves. Yeah. I, just I, insane. I, I laughed about that in the moment. Um, 
I, I'll do a fight corner for the uh, entire institutional church. I never felt I was at my like burn it all down max <laughs> while watching this. <laughs> like this is not redeemable. It just needs to go away and start again. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to admit I'm perhaps sentimental. Uh, the ending on the, on the ending on the wedding in the national cathedral, I was just like, okay, I'm in. Oh, it was gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. And it was, I mean, I, I think, I, again, not to be a sap, but like whatever kind of happy ending you can get out of that, like to me, that was like, all right, I, I, I understand and I agree with everything that you're saying. And, and two, I, CJ, I thought of you as soon as I realized it was the National Cathedral. I was like, I know where this is going. <laughs> I know where this is going. Um, but I, I, I liked it. I was just like, I was like, this is, this is, this was, it was good. It was, it was, uh, you know, the part where, uh, uh, that you know that actually made me get emotional was at the end where there's just like I don't know there's something there's something that can be replicated there I think and I don't know as yeah, always my, my still on the side of the with, institutional church a little bit <laughs> so. again my fight quarters with the dean here I don't think I said anything about burning down the national cathedral yeah, yeah. let's be clear please let's <laughs> that was not not the Bless, thing <laughs> lest I get accused of. Um, violence yet again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I was uh, I was like, okay, going into this recording, can't get CJ accused of violence <laughs> against anything from the Reagan era. I mean, I didn't think it was good that, or I was at least like happy that two of the four of them have clearly found a way to like re-understand their faith that didn't, you know, that wasn't based around this homophobia. I mean, I thought that that part of it was like, I don't know, just a positive way to end the film that after all of that, they had been able to maintain a relationship with Jesus and that Jesus had, as Julie says, you know, had helped them like heal after all of that. It was, yeah, it was moving. So do, do y'all have, do either of y'all have a fight corner or um, wrap up? I just want to promote the, uh, the mailbag episode. We want to do one, send questions to cancelbag at gmail.com. It'll be in the show notes. Send us your questions and all will be revealed. Yeah, I don't have a fight corner. I'm too exhausted from watching this documentary to have anything, any other, uh, any other takes on anything. So, I will. I guess just before we go, the miseducation of Cameron Post is a really good YA novel that is about uh, the experience of being in conversion therapy that does not center the leaders. There's also a memoir by Gerard Conley called Boy Erased. I've read the memoir, have not seen the movie, so cannot speak to the quality of the movie. But the book is really good, and that is also based on the experience of someone who experienced conversion therapy, but obviously was not converted and also did not end up working in leadership. So if you're interested in this topic and don't know where to go next, those are two good places to start. And uh, The Miseducation of Cameron Post was written by Emily M. Emily M. Danforth, who I'm going to reach out to and try to get on the pod because uh, she's awesome. And she had a book right. come out like this year, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Plain Bad Heroines is the name of that one. Heroin? Heroines, oh, yes. Yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Plain bad heroin? Hell yeah. Uh, you get, you, you're like two weeks out of the church, Isaac, and it's all... It's all it's slippery slope, Slippery baby. slope. I found yeah. it. Uh, just right into hardcore drugs. I think that's the end. <laughs> yeah, that's the end, yes. Yeah.